Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hey Simon. Hey Simon. Today we are looking at the 1987 film Wall Street and to help us we're joined by a special guest. Felix Salmon is the Chief Financial Correspondent at Axios and host of the Slate Money podcast. Hi Felix, thanks so much for joining us today. Very excited. It's something I never thought I'd be doing is talking about 23 year old wait how old is this 33 year old 33 years old this movie yep wow i know okay we we like to keep up to date with current culture so uh... (laughs) it's it's amazing how how it's it still has kind of cultural resonance and people still quote it and still think about it and refer to it it's that one and trading places basically they will never die absolutely another great film um Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do the preamble and then we can get into the fun of it. Um, so directed and co-written by Oliver Stone, Wall Street tells the story of a junior stockbroker Bud Fox, played by Charlie Sheen. The film depicts Bud's rise up the Wall Street ladder, with him desperate to work for his hero, Gordon Gekko, played by Michael Douglas, who went on to win Best Actor at the 1988 Oscars for his portrayal of the ruthless Wall Street investor. In contrast, Bud's father is an honest blue-collar worker, played to perfection by Martin Sheen, and he is the moral center of the movie. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind and greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. The, the film has kind of become iconic for the portrayal of 1980s America and with, with the phrase, greed is good, and entering the lexicon as a result. So can we just kind of get an initial impression from you guys, starting with Felix, on the movie and how, how it kind of stands up today and your, your reaction to watching it. So there are two different Wall Streets, right? And the Wall Street of the 80s was much more dominated by what you see in this movie, which is brokers selling stocks to individuals and mm-hmm. people trying to buy stocks which are going up and sell stocks which are going down and it's fast paced and it's a sales culture. And while there's a little bit of speculation, especially now on Robin Hood and places like that, the sales culture of brokerages and the idea that you, um, you know, would be making phone calls to people who don't even know what you are trying to sell stocks to them. That, that just feels like a whole other era that, you know, that went away. Everyone's now really boring and index funds and that kind of thing. So part that part of the movie, um, feels like very irrelevant to how Wall Street works today, although there are still little pockets of it here and there in places like Long Island. But the heart of the movie, which is just this tension, I guess you could say, between labor and capital, that is eternal. And it Mm -hmm. still is incredibly resonant. And the movie still feels incredibly fresh. Uh, Vaughn, your thoughts on seeing this for the first time? 
Yeah, so this was the first time that I saw it, um, which may be surprising. But um, no, I really love what, what you just said, Felix, about uh, the struggle between labor and capital being kind of eternal, and it makes this film kind of timeless. Um, there are a lot of little mentions that set it in its time, for sure. It is very, very 80s in its presentation. Um, especially that wall art and the gold leaf on the skirting boards. That was that was a particular touch, I think. And, and, the, um, and the massive cell phone, don't forget that. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was, the story can be timeless, for sure. Um, which I think, I think that's actually kind of masterfully done. I mean, I'm not a historian of, or a fi finance person at all, um, historian of the stock market or anything. So I only kind of vaguely understand what was going on with the, the actual monetary side of it. But at the base structure from a filmic perspective, the storyline is timeless and applied to this very kind of specific time period that has a lot of connotations for that time and now. Um, and I think it was very, very well done even if it wasn't my favorite movie of all time. And Toby? Yeah, I, I, I really, really enjoyed this movie. I think it sort of captures the zeitgeist of the 80s and the, and the late 80s. And Reagan had gone to the stock exchange in New York and he had been, I think, the first president to ever go there. And he announced, you know, by his financial regulations that he was letting the ball loose. And, and this movie really captures the... The, the the stock market and Wall Street really took center stage in this time period. And a figure like uh, Gordon Gekko has become almost immortal because he, I think, represents this sort of speculative side, the, the, the great amounts of uh, wealth that one can accumulate. And also um, yuppie culture, you know, Bud Fox is a, is a guy <laughs> from a working class background, but he wants to have all, all this wealth He's he's um, living in New York, making decent money, but he can't he can't you know make enough to cover his rent or cover his bills. He's losing money. He doesn't want to go back to his father because you know as a, as a guy who wants to be a yuppie, he needs to look good and you know Armani suits and things like that just just to be in the city. So it rep represents, I think, the the Reagan era quite well because. As we know from our last episode, you know, even young people, people under 30 voted for Reagan and people under 30 wanted to, you know, they wanted to be rich. They wanted to be yuppies. And this movie in many ways captures the zeitgeist, both from a financial perspective and for the, for the needs, uh, I think, in the culture at, at that particular moment. Uh, Felix, what, what were your thoughts watching the film kind of on the relationship between the Gordon Gekko character and the Martin uh, and the Charlie Sheen character of Bud Fox. And did you recognize those types of characters as sort of real life people or were they more caricatures? So they definitely existed in the eighties, right? The mm -hmm. corporate raider, the, the, the Carl icon, the um, Mike Milken, the, Ivan Bosky, like a bunch of these people wound up going to jail. Um, the idea that you would buy and sell companies and make millions or even billions of dollars doing it. That was, that basically didn't exist before the eighties and it started in the eighties and 
and Oliver Stone really put his 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 finger on the pulse there, and he identified something which still exists to this day, right? There are still um, financiers and billionaires who do that kind of thing and who make a lot of money doing it. And Gordon Gecko is obviously exaggerated, um, and he has uh, a little bit of what you might call. Um, hedge funder to him as well, like Avon Lalette for like hedge funds didn't really exist back then. But he, you know, he was all about like getting edge, getting inside information, trying to make money, knowing what stocks are going to do in the future, that kind of thing. And so he, he was prescient in that sense. The Bud Fox character is is kind of more interesting. There's always been this uh kind of myth on Wall Street or this legend or this idea that, and it exists in the city of London too, that you get like the Essex Barrow boy or someone like that, some like working class guy who's hungry and they are hard scrabble and they work their way, way up. And, and, you know, banks like Bear Stearns were famous for having these, um, you know, poor and hungry brokers working for them who just wanted to make money and that was what made them successful. Um, I think that is now less of a thing. The idea that you don't really, you know, you're not being polished up at Harvard and Wharton and Stanford to go into investment banking and create PowerPoint presentations. You know, it's just like going out, hitting the phones, selling. You don't even need a university degree at all. That, that feels much more 80s and feels much more alien to what you would likely find today. Uh, Vaughn, what, what was your, your thoughts on the relationship between Bud's character and his father, which is kind of the more moral center of the story and the, 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 the labor side of it, as it were? Right. Um, so I loved that part of the film. Um, I thought it was a really good representation of a kind of older generation's reverence almost for the the manual labor kind of factory jobs and their unions their dedication to workers laterally rather than to the company um vertically i thought martin sheen did an excellent job portraying that um he had a lot of passion when talking about the unions and his fellow workers and Conversely, um, Charlie Sheen's character in kind of challenging all of those, those views representing the younger generation that is hungry, like Felix says, like trying to break in um, to this, this new kind of exciting and alluring financial position um, that didn't really exist before this generation. Um, I think Charlie Sheen plays that role really well and shows how eager and alluring and attractive it was to kind of fall into this way of life. Um, I just don't think that's the only dynamic in the in the film um, because you also have an older character who works with uh, Charlie Sheen who anytime he goes towards him, he's not just you know, talking about how you can make money or become Gordon Gecko, who's like, you know, like the work that we do helps build businesses. Like look at how IBM and Hilton were built. If we invest in these companies, we can actually help, we can help the workers and we can help businesses grow. 
and that sort of far style, the contrast between, say, Carl um, Martin Sheen's character and Gordon Gecko, there's a sort of middle ground that Oliver Stone mm-hmm. explores in this film. So it's not like, I don't know if it's a deeply anti-capitalist movie in that way. It, it hates... I think that guy was a little bit delusional, though. I don't think anyone buys that. Okay. Um, you know, I, I mean, certainly I can, I can tell you from a sort of financial analytics point of view that if you are IBM or Hilton and you've, you know, done your stock offering, your stock is out in the market, you raise as much money as you raised when you sold your stock. At that point, the gyration, the speculative gyrations in your stock really don't matter to you much that much. I mean, like, especially in the 80s, um, stock-based compensation was much less of a thing than it is now. The managers were not laser focused on the stock price in the way that they became later on. And Mm -hmm. they weren't, they didn't care who owned their stock really. Like they, I mean, they knew that the shareholders mattered on some level and, and what you see during that very indelible shareholder meeting scene with the paper company is, is the idea that like, Oh, you know, the, directors of the company are finally waking up and realizing that this whole group of people called shareholders exist. That was much more the reality. I don't think this idea that the shareholders are important to the company in some way, that the company needs them as much as they need the company that came later. And I think, and it's, and it's not true. Hmm. Interesting. Um, It's really interesting because I think Oliver Stone has talked about like, um, being pro globalization and and I think that kind of character. Oliver Stone pro globalization. Yeah, this, he sure talked about, about that. Pro globalization. <laughs> I think that kind of character in the movie. I think he sort of harkens back to Oliver Stone's father because Oliver Stone's father actually worked on Wall Street, and I think Oliver Stone's right. father was kind of like this guy a little bit because there's a sense that you know at the beginning of the film he's like. You know, I don't like Roosevelt and, and Nixon shouldn't have got all the gold standards. Like, he's a, he's a finance guy, but he isn't Gordon Gecko, And I think that's what Oliver Stone was trying to get through in, in the movie, even though it might have not necessarily made sense. I, I do know that um, there is this transition towards caring about the, the shareholder much more. I think in the, in the speech that Gecko has with the Teldar papers, he's making that quite clear like all this these management um, they're making millions there but you know you're you're the most uh, important shareholder to speak but these people are more important than you and i'm going to bring value for you but but i do think that that kind of archetypal older stockbroker is is what um oliver stone is trying to get through even if he doesn't really capture it perfectly Right. I think the more, the more interesting older capitalist is, is Sir Larry Wildman, you know, Terrence mm. Stamp's character. Yeah. That, that he's, he's, he creates almost this idea of the white knight. The white knight, again, is this idea that before this movie came out, pretty much didn't exist. And then it became a thing. And that's another part of like just how prescient this movie was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, it's, it's always, uh, subplot really in in financial history white knights are not a big part of finance and there's no doubt that wildman is just as ruthless in his own way as gecko is but he's managed to polish it up a little bit more and be a little bit more old money about it and a little bit more respectable about it and ultimately if he can 
get one over on Gordon Gecko by siding with the unions for once. Like he will do that, but there's no real indication that he's in any way on the side of labor. Hmm. He's more on the side of himself trying to win, I guess. Yeah. Um, so right. just, just on that character then, what did you think of the, the, the British white knight in that regard? And how, how does that kind of play into the kind of historical accuracy of those types of, you know, <laughs> I don't know, a rich British guy also being on Wall Street type of thing? Is, is that a caricature in itself? No, I don't think that's okay. I mean, that's not like a, a sort of cliche that you come mm -hmm. across very much. I'm thinking that maybe like someone like Lord Hanson, if that name rings any bell, might, um, right, okay. you know, was like this English financier who created this thing called the Hanson Trust, which back in the day became this big sort of transatlantic conglomerate. He would probably, might be one of the closer things, but he always felt a little bit more nouveau than than Terence Stamp's character. So I don't think there's a lot of cliche there. I think, I think you know, Stamp, the Wildman is needed as this kind of deus ex machina to come in in the final act and kind mm -hmm. of save the day. He, he's a little bit of a MacGuffin in that sense. Um, but yeah, so I, I, don't, I don't think he's a key part of the, of what Oliver, Oliver Stone captured about rapacious capitalism. But he is an interesting character, and I think Terence Stamp plays him wonderfully. Uh, according to Wikipedia, which where I get all my information from, um, he was apparently <laughs> modeled on James Goldsmith, which is probably a name that means more to you than it does to me, I have to say. Jimmy Goldsmith, he's the, you know, he's the guy who basically created Brexit. Well, <laughs> well that, that's good enough for us. He's... Uh... Oh, and I, I think it's probably important that he's, he's not American. Right. Because I think uh, the Gecko character, there's a, there's a sense that he's a cipher for changes that are happening in, in American life. He's announcing that America is, yeah, the, the industry is dying, uh, unions are lazy, and um, we do, we're not making anything, but we're, greed is something that we're good at. And I think making that other character British um, adds a, a sense of distance between between him and, and Gecko again, and also between him and, and I think the the paradigm that that Oliver Stone is trying to depict. depict. Uh, just back on Gecko, then uh, Felix, I imagine this was sort of a, a takedown by um, by the filmmakers to kind of have a go at Wall Street. But in reality, what kind of happened is that Gecko became this character, which was large in life and you know got all the best lines in the film and became almost like a calling uh, calling card for young people in the 80s and 90s to oh i'm gonna follow that you know i'm gonna move into this line of work do, do you do you think the do you think oliver stone kind of ultimately failed in his message he was trying to get across with the film because of the success of gordon gecko so it's very similar in that sense to michael lewis's book Liar's Poker, which he wrote as this kind of cautionary tale about Wall Street and everyone read as this, oh my God, Wall Street is so glamorous. But <laughs> in, in a weird way, it's it's even similar to American Psycho, right? The, the Bret Easton Ellis book. Um, that it was, it was written from this position of complete revulsion at yuppie culture and became something else. And while you wouldn't say that Patrick Bateman became a hero, he, he definitely became this kind of cultural touchstone um, who was less than entirely evil and was and reflected something that people wanted for themselves. So I think that idea, I mean, that's what all good art does, right? It's there's attention. It's it, it, you don't just create the black hats and the white hats. And 
And I think that in a weird way, that's why the film has survived so well is because if it was just, you know, bad Gecko, you know, bad Michael Douglas versus good um, Martin Sheen, then yeah. that would that would be a, a much more boring movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think um, with with Gecko, both Michael Douglas and Charlie Sheen receive it like when they're walking, you know, in New York or anywhere else that. You know, we I want to be Bud Fox or I want to be Gordon Gecko, right? And and Michael Douglas is like, wait, my character went to prison. Like, what? Why do you? Why do you want to be, be Gordon Gecko, right? But it, it's it's something we that don't know that that Gordon Gecko goes to prison. My, I have to say, my kind of well, we know from the sequel expect- that he does. Oh yeah, never I, watched the sequel. I've never I watched the trailer for the sequel. <laughs> The trailer for the sequel told me that he went to prison. So don't um, don't like. I mean, I, I think I think the right way to move, to to watch this movie is to end at the end credits <laughs> and like have no idea that a sequel even exists. I, yeah, it's definitely possible that that Gecko goes to prison. It is also de- and as I say, people like Milken and Bosky did go to prison. Um, they went to prison mainly because there was this um, incredibly aggressive. Um, district attorney in New York by the name of Rudy Giuliani, who really made it his career to, to, to bring them down. Um, and so it's possible that there's some Rudy Giuliani type who wants to bring him down, but it's equally possible that there is, right? <laughs> and it's equally possible that um, Gecko's expensive lawyers will, will get him off. Yeah. And that the only person who winds up going to prison is the little guy, Bud Fox, who yeah. definitely does deserve to go to prison but yes. on some level um you know the the moral of this story is a bit weird because i think most of the people who watched this movie and who saw gordon gecko and who thought that's what i want that's what i want to be that's what i aspire to you know they're the people who when bud fox walks into the meeting of the um, company, which he's ostensibly the president of, and finds out that they're going to destroy the airline rather than save it. Like, at that point, you know, he takes his meeting with Gecko. Gecko says, you're going to be incredibly rich either way. And he goes, oh, I get it. Like, he's already broken the law, right, for, for, for Gecko. At this yeah. point, this is his payoff for breaking the law. That's exactly what he wanted all along. Yeah, and I I really don't buy that transition that Bod Fox goes through. He's already using some of his friends um, to make these sort of these deals. He's he's talking about how the the, the pension at that um, Blue Star is overfed, and he goes into that room, which is a little bit ghoulish. Everyone's talking about you know crushing and destroying the the company, and I think the expectation is that if you are an audience member who's interested in Gordon Gecko, like a young Bod Fox, a budding Bod Bod Fox, you would, in that scene, you would just say, oh, okay, I've got what I wanted from, from this. I'm going to have to sell, it, sell this to my father. But beyond that, yeah, I don't really buy Bod's transition in this in this movie. Not Is that because that's not what you would do, Toby? Yeah. Toby would sell out. Once you sold your de- the soul to the devil, at that point, like, it's hard to unsell it. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and Darian, his, the the, the his girlfriend in this movie is much more 
I think the, her, her response is much nat- more naturalistic. Like, you know, he, um, he's done everything. Uh, Gecko's done everything for me. He um, mm-hmm. gave me many of my clients and contracts when I was a struggling uh, interior decorator. He, he's made me. And uh, I don't think I can be with you if, if you're going, going against him. I think that's much more. And I think you see this kind of thing in like the, the Wolf of Wall Street. You know? A lot of the people around um, uh, Jordan Belfont in mm-hmm. the Wolf of Wall Street are very, very attached to him. You know, he, he, yeah. I remember he was talking to a lady. You know, when they say that uh, Jordan has to leave the company and J- Jordan can leave the company, still be rich, but he still wants to do this. When they say he has to leave, there's a, there's a lady he picks out in the crowd and he tells her about, you know, how uh, she was a struggling mother. And um, she, when she finally got the job, she needed a 5,000 advance and he gave her 25,000. And because of that, she's a psychopath, just like Bob Fox is. The, you know, society is not someone who can have this just redemption story and, 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 make it believable in the amount of time that Oliver Stone provided in this movie. And I, and I do think, yeah, I, I do think that that's one of the real limitations of this movie. In my well, opinion. I think you're underestimating just how, how difficult it would be to um, disappoint Martin Sheen. I don't think you could look him yeah. in the face and <laughs> ultimately kind of go on with your life if you saw him disappointed in you, Toby. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, Simon, I, I do buy it. Because I think a point that is being made in this film is that these brokers are displaced from the work. They're displaced from the workers and everyone that these deals and and whatever actually mean for the people involved with the other side of it, if that makes sense. They're they're so displaced and they're okay with capitalism doing what it needs to do and doing what it does in ruining people's lives in the ways that they are talking about in the film. But since they are so displaced from them, he doesn't actually understand what what he is doing until it affects him personally by affecting his father. Okay, so I, okay, I definitely yeah. buy his transition there. Okay, well, well he I... did give uh, Gecko the inside information on the company at the beginning. That's how we got into this. Right? He did. Yeah, and but think... he didn't see any negatives for the people that he was directly impacting until he was in the later meeting. He thought he was right, doing that, a that good was, thing. That's one of the great paradoxes of insider dealing, right? Is that it's a victimless crime. Yeah. When, when Bud Fox gives Gordon Gecko the inside information about the airline passing the safety test, um, what that does is it allows Gecko to buy a position in that stock before the stock goes up and make lots of money that way, but the stock will go up anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no real victim to that crime. Right. Sorry, Von, on you go. Well, um, yeah, I was just gonna say that, that throughout the film, he says nobody gets hurt like 20 times when he's trying to convince people to break the law for him. But then when he realizes what his actual actions of saying, oh, this is all victimless, nobody's gonna get hurt. When, when he realizes what that actually means for the thousands of people who are going to lose their jobs, including his father, he's like, oh shit, maybe this isn't a good idea. Maybe this is, this is pretty awful of me. And then he has a complete change of, change of heart and says that he doesn't need any of the money and that he can live to survive. 
Mm-hmm. And that's that's when Darian's like, well, I don't want to survive. I've been surviving all my life. I want to like thrive right now. So I can't follow you. Because if you're not going to be making as much money as you were, then you can go to hell. And he's choosing his morals and his dad over that. And I think that's, I don't know, I buy it. But also, I'm a communist, so that's yeah. fair. <laughs> but anyway. I was actually going to ask, as a resident communist, um, <laughs> uh, kind of going in, into the episode or it, going into the film to watch, I'm sure you'd heard the name Gordon Gecko. you might have seen clips, etc. Mm-hmm. What was your experience kind of watching him as a character on screen from what you'd kind of heard from, you know, maybe clips of it or, you know, just in the zeitgeist, etc. What, what was your, your, your takeaway on that? And also, would it have been better if Richard Gere had played him? Everything <laughs> would be better if Richard Gere played him. Like, just blanket statement. Um, but <laughs> as, as Gordon Gekko, um, I mean, I definitely kind of heard it before. I am American, grew up there. It's definitely part of the, the culture, I think, um, to hear that around. And then there's also um, doing my due diligence as a researcher. I looked into the film before I actually watched it, which is probably a mistake. But um, there's that, that trope of like, quote unquote, that guy. And it's, he's always a finance guy. Um, like I was saying to you guys, Anthony Scaramucci is, oh, is yeah. this kind of like sleazy, like, like, like that 80s guy with like the suspenders and the shoulder pads and you're like why are you dressed like that in 2019 like and Anthony Scaramucci once gave me grief for having you know unkempt hair because he always has like the, <laughs> the, the, the slicked back like real cream look and you're like you're absolutely right he is a throwback to the 80s there yeah. was this weird nostalgia for that time yes. right now and I think I think that's that helped to explain why Martin Scorsese who I think is a 214 years old I'm not sure but that, this explains <laughs> to it does explain why when he made his Wall Street movie he made the Wolf of Wall Street again about the same era the same kind yeah. of market shop aggressive like selling stocks over the phone to individuals it's like no one does that anymore but it's is it is like eternally attractive to a certain you know I guess to the kind of people who who live through it and who, for whom it really resonates for but that's sure. why i will push back by the way on richard gear um richard gear would have been too smooth the whole mm-hmm. point is you have to you have to contrast him to terence stamp and can you imagine richard gear saying lunches for wimps <laughs> okay well while we're on the subject actually um i, w- I want to ask you about this because uh after i watched it last night this was the first time i'd seen it um I had a lot of thoughts about Pretty Woman because Pretty Woman came out three years later and Richard Gere is very much a a gecko type. Um, He buys companies to liquidate them and sell off the pieces, whatever. I don't really understand that part. But then he has this like childhood dream of building things. And it's this very romantic thing that Julia Roberts like builds this up for him to gives him the confidence to actually not break apart a building or a company um, and instead use it to build things that he wants. So there's this like very kind of romantic view of the gecko character, but ultimately he's still destroying things because he's this company that he's building is for war profiteering and they're making ships to sell to the Navy. So it's this much kind of softer, rounder, more attractive, more lovable gecko type, but they're still very similar. I think Gear is harder to to 
Bill as an everyman type character because there's moments in this in this movie geckos like you know wasps they don't like um, human beings but they love animals or you know all these Harvard MBA types that you know I'm better than and licking my shoe like he's a he's a guy on the come up he's like Bob Fox and I think you couldn't sell gear in the same way in this movie I think he was more silver spoon do you think yeah exactly yeah yeah, I think I think that the the pretty woman kind of plot line is, you know, what happens or it's it's a bit like what happens in heat, right? It's like the the hard black hat, you know, evil guy is is softened by love of a woman mm-hmm. and then and then the woman who he falls in love with will persuade Gordon Gecko that instead of breaking up the airline, he should do what Bud Fox wants and really invest in it and make it grow. And that's, um, you know, this wonderful term, which John Whitehouse, the former chairman of Goldman Sachs, used to say, long-term greedy. That, yeah, you can make your short-term profit by breaking it up, but if you hold on to it and build it, then you can make 10 times as much money. And and that's the sort of, uh, the big capitalist vision, right? Is that these Gordon Gecko types, they're so, concentrated on short-term profits they miss the big opportunities for long-term profits um you know that there, there is a very very different movie which could have been written that way but given that there's no indication that gordon gecko is capable of any kind of human emotion except for anger um mm-hmm. yeah it, it it's not this one right um i'm Sorry, have you got any more? I was just going to ask Felix, maybe you could give just a little bit of context on, you know, we, we, we see the film, you know, it's 1987, you know, I think the film starts in like depicting 85, you know, it's just after Reagan has won his second, uh, second term in office. You know, why, can you, can you help us understand why, you know, we were, why Wall Street was a thing in the 80s when it wasn't beforehand? And maybe give a little bit of context as to, you know, why it was that, you know, we are tied to this 1980s image of the stock market when it wasn't that the case in the 70s, for instance. Right. This is the Reagan-Thatcher revolution, right? This mm-hmm. is, um, to, to put this in a little bit of perspective, this movie is 33 years old, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we are still treating it today as a touchstone, which is incredibly resonant. And when we think about yuppies and capitalism and labor versus capital and all of this kind of thing it's it's fresh it doesn't it it holds up right um 33 years back from 1987 will get you to 1954 right it's a completely other era um it's this very it's this post-war trodden down Poor, like it's it's this era where um, people worry about being able to find the money to buy food to feed their family, right? Mm-hmm. That food is a significant expense and it's something which really can um, takes up a huge amount of your mental worry space. And the basic needs of like food and shelter and being able to just you know maybe aspire to having an indoor toilet you know these become this is what people were worrying about in the early 50s right and and this is what the people in the 80s could remember right like the oliver stone was probably about my age when he made this movie um 
and he can remember back to the 50s and he can remember what like that was like and so suddenly this reagan thatcher revolution comes this you, you get these yuppies you get these 20 something men who make huge amounts of money just moving pieces of paper around and doing finance and capitalism um what um, Lord Turner in the UK would call socially useless activities, right? It doesn't actually really create any value. It just creates money. And, and it's the beginning of what's known as the fire sector in the economy, finance, insurance, real estate, where huge amounts of money are made in just investing and doing financial things rather than making stuff and selling it. You know, you're not making, whether it's, arms for the military or whether it's you know tea bags right like no, no matter where you make your money from up until the 80s you made your money creating a thing and selling it and then suddenly in the 80s there was this whole other way of making money which is by creating nothing and selling nothing and just financing stuff and basically on some level borrowing money at less uh, a cheaper rates than you're lending it out at and pocketing the difference and that used to be really boring bankers used to do that, right? That was the, uh, I think it was known as the um, 363 model of banking, which is borrow money at 3%, lend money at 6%, leave the office at three o'clock. <laughs> and it was how bankers always used to work until the 80s. And then what came, what happened in the 80s, both in London and in New York, was this whole new breed of aggressive financiers came in and totally disrupted that. And, it, and that transition and that revolution um, stayed and it stuck. And it was incredibly violent and rapid and happened super quickly in the 80s. And that's why everyone was so obsessed with it. They could see it happening before their eyes. And they're like, what the hell? Like, you know, these kids like Bud Fox suddenly buying these ma massive apartments on the Upper East Side and mm. having all of this cash to flash around. Where did these people come from? They never existed before in human history. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a good question. Um, and I think Gordon kind of captures that when he's talking to Bud Fox after he's wrecked uh, Blue Star, or something he wrecked Blue Star. So it, he looks at a painting and he's like, you know, this painting, it, it used to cost 60000 but today it costs 600,000. But the illusion has become real and more, and the more real it becomes, the more desperate they want it. There's that sense that he's not really doing anything. He's not really making anything. Mm -hmm. And I think Oliver Stone has that feeling that he doesn't really trust or like this kind of, of work. And, and I think it's that, as um, Felix has said, that's, that's new and, and different. And, um, I know, like, Bud Fox actually, or, or, or Darian, I suppose, we should say Darian Taylor, um, manages to put a Julian Schnabel on his wall in his Upper East Side apartment. You're like, holy crap, like, you know, today that would be worth 10 times more than the apartment. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And to think I've made fun of those 80s art. Um, <laughs> if, Felix, can I ask you how the, the Reagan's sort of Reagan's financial deregulation how that changed america and you know did it have sort of direct impacts on things like the saving and loans crisis of 89 and you know the different finance uh, 
system that we saw after it in the 90s and 2000s. Yeah, I, I mean, it certainly, um, you know, the, the savings and loans crisis on some level was a failure of regulation. And what Reagan did was deregulate. And what Thatcher did was deregulate. You had this thing in London called the Big Bang, where they just basically just ripped up huge amounts of regulation about who could do what and just said, okay, everyone just have at it. And what and the in the initial surge of economic activity in the immediate aftermath of that deregulation was exactly what you're seeing in the in this movie in the wolf of wall street mm -hmm. um in the activities that were prosecuted by giuliani you know mm -hmm. it was a bunch of people just taking as much advantage as they could of this new leeway and often overstepping the bounds even of that and doing stuff that was completely illegal in a very aggressive attempt to just make as much money as they conceivably could. And that kind of like, you're off to the races, just go ahead and like, then we'll take the hindmost. And if you wind up ha causing a huge amount of what we call negative externalities, if you wind up destroying companies along the way, this is creative destruction. This is capitalism red in tooth and claw. This is, this is what we stand for. This is laissez-faire capitalism. And a lot of people really bought into it, even through the stock market crash of 1987. And honestly, it wasn't until the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, that those people who bought into that ideology began to see just how devastatingly harmful it could be. Yeah. And I think it's also important that they clearly did buy into it because it's into the 90s where you have Bill Clinton, you know, signing um, legislation that removes uh, Glass-Steagall and, and issues like that. So, yeah, it, 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 when the Democrats sort of moved closer to, to finance, they didn't have a real criticism of this kind of behavior or the, the change. Absolutely not. The, yeah, the, the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act and everything that... Larry Summers did when he was Treasury Secretary to deregulate the commodities industry. Um, in many ways, the you know in the Clinton era, the Democrats were more friendly to Wall Street than the Republicans. And you know, New York is a blue state; it has mm -hmm. Democratic senators who are very happy to bend over backwards to do whatever Wall Street wants. And Wall Street, you know, in terms of where it donates money, certainly now it is is donating much more to democrats and to republicans and has been donating a lot of money to democrats all along we live in a society where politicians do what their donors want them to do you know and in new york you can see what the results are and i think after 1984 there was a deep sense by the democrats that they needed to attach themselves to specific uh, strategic industries in order to make themselves electable again, and um, finance is one that they, they they picked. And we're very, very lucky that they did that because everything's turned out absolutely fine since then. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, as Felix says, um, this is uh, part of the inf influence for characters like Gecko, where people like Ivan Bosky and Michael Milken, I think Bosky actually influenced the greeters good speech because he had a speech in uh, 86 where he referred to greed is all right and he, he talked about he also went to a um 
a graduation and he said, you know, it, it's good to make money and it's um, things like that. And, and I think he was implicated in an in a, um, insider trading issue. He and, was, um, and he went to jail for Eventually it. went to prison. And interestingly, since we, we mentioned the, the painting on the wall of Gecko's office, um, his daughter, Marianne Bosky, became a very, very high-powered art dealer and would buy and sell exactly that kind of thing. Mm, interesting. Are, are, is there any kind of, and I know it's a sort of a depiction of, of sort of people, well, some people doing some terrible things. Is there any sort of almost romantic view of this idea of a sort of a simpler time of this idea of sort of selling stocks to individual people? You said at the start it was kind of this sort of old ideas, almost as if watching sort of old black and white, you know, basketball before they had the three point shots, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> is is there any kind of almost? Yeah, I, I, and I, I what I would like that. to know is like before the stockholder value movement, what what did these people actually do before before that? These brokers, what do they do? So. It's very hard to, like, maybe, maybe the place to start here is with that whopping great big brick of a cell phone that <laughs> Gordon Gecko uses on the beach in the Hamptons. Um, it's hard to remember just how low tech things were in the mm. 80s. And the kind of technology that we take for granted today will do things like allow us to buy an index fund or an ETF, which gives you tiny, tiny little slices of 500 different stocks in perfectly calculated proportion mm. so that you can invest in the market as a whole. The technology also lets us know exactly how the market as a whole is doing. It lets us know how stockbroker recommendations do. It lets us look back on the history of mutual funds and brokerage recommendations and be able to see whether they outperform the market and whether there's an alternative, which is passive investment and all of this kind of stuff. There's just enormous amounts of data available to everyone so easily. Like all you need to do is just spend one second going to the Yahoo Finance homepage and it's all there. And, and you have all of this information. None of that information was available to people. None of that information was available to individuals back in the 80s. What you had was people who had savings, right? They had, you know, they, they, they were like middle class, you know, 50 something family, you know, person with, with, with grown children, perhaps, and a bunch of savings. And they're like, what am I meant to do with my savings? And they would get a phone call from their stockbroker and the stockbroker would say, I think you should invest in this stock and that stock. And they would be like, I don't know anything about the markets. I don't know anything about money. So I'll just take your advice and invest in those stocks and hope that the stocks go up. And they'd be like, what's the dividend? And then every so often, perhaps they would open up their newspaper to the business pages and they would look, run their finger down the list of stocks and they'd try and look at what the share price was, which they would find out once a day in the morning, you know, what yesterday's close was. And they just didn't have anything like the technology or the wealth of information that we have today. And so that whole business of brokers being someone who, being, being people who were necessary to help individuals invest their money was something which was 
not even questioned in the 1980s when this movie was made. Today, the vast majority of people with money don't have a stockbroker. You know, you, you can have millions of dollars and not have a stockbroker. That wouldn't have been possible in the 1980s. Sounds almost like a sort of, um, sort of financial um, travel advisor. You know, we kind of got rid of them once we got... Um, uh, exactly. Once we got a Google, we didn't need someone to book a holidays for us. We could just go on our various websites and do it for us, do it for for ourselves. Um, just kind of coming back to the the idea of insider trading, then um, I, I can understand the general context of you know you get told information that you know is informing your decisions, and you know Gecko talks about how he he doesn't throw darts at a uh, dartboard. You know he makes informed decisions, and that's kind of ultimately what what brings him down, or at least gets the authorities on him you you hear rumblings about sort of insider trading from a distance at least i remember the story early in the year where a couple of republican senators had been accused of it with regards to the coronavirus i think there'd been a sort of behind closed doors meeting and then they dumped their stock a couple of days later but nothing kind of came of it is there can you can you maybe help us understand you know at what point it becomes insider trading that you get done for and at what point it's just sort of you know people who are smart with money making smart decisions so insider trading is it's it's really weird because there's no actual insider trading statute on the mm-hmm. books really it's not a clearly defined thing it's been built up sort of a bit geologically i'd say like through various bits of jurisprudence and precedents and the laws um and the precedents morph and change very very slowly over time and there's and it differs quite interestingly between countries like in france it's very different from in the us for instance mm. and so and and it's partly because as i say it's it, it's often very hard to identify who the victims are um it's hard to identify often like who did anything what wrong or why it was wrong um yeah if you think that um the coronavirus is going to cause a decline in the stock market you sell your stocks that's a rational thing to do right Mm um and if you know and, and but if you're if people you're knew that the coronavirus existed, mm-hmm. you know, when we were seeing the headlines coming out of Wuhan sure. and, and yeah, it like, and then maybe the reason why you think that the coronavirus is going to be bad is because you got uh, a briefing in the Senate. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and so you, you, you take, you, you think, wait, this could be really bad. I'm going to sell my stocks. And then the, the question then becomes, is, is that illegal in some way? And, mm-hmm. um, it's certainly hypocritical if you come out at the same time as you're selling your stocks and you say in public, the coronavirus is nothing to worry about. It's completely contained. It's not going to come to this country. We don't need to worry. Everything's going to be great. And at the same time, you're selling your stocks. That's, that's clearly hypocrisy on a political mm-hmm. level. But trying to prove criminality is is much much harder and it's hard to see and you know who would even prosecute that so it's it's a very odd crime and um and if you're an aggressive prosecutor then you can often 
try and prosecute for people for insider trading and often you will succeed and people are still going to jail for insider trading. Um, Raj Rajnaratnam was the biggest high profile case in recent years. He ran this big hedge fund and, um, and was guilty of insider trading and went down. Um, you know, people have been attempting to bring insider trading cases against Stevie Cohen for many years and failing to do so. So it's it's a very complex part of the law. Um, and a lot of people view it as though it's a very clear black and white, did you insider trade or did you not? Did you have material non-public information or did you not? And trying to define what that means turns out to be much more difficult than you might think. Right, okay. But did you think that the, the stuff that Giuliani did um, when he he um, charged a lot of people for insider trading and he put a lot of people, yuppies in handcuffs and, and things like that, and even like people like Boski, do you, do you think that stuff was right? Was it definitely insider trading or, or was it just- Oh, it was, that, was def that was definitely insider trading. Although, I mean, it's interesting you say that, right? Because one of the people that Giuliani put into prison was Mike Milken. And if you recall, about a year or so ago, Donald Trump pardons Milken and basically says, you know what, you didn't do anything wrong. And there are a lot of people out there, um, especially in the Republican Party, who genuinely believe to this day that Milken didn't actually do anything wrong and did not deserve to go to jail. I think some people said that he sh um, he should have been in prison or he should have been uh, treasury treasury secretary of the United States. <laughs> exactly. Sorry, Vaughn, were you going to say something? Yeah, um, I'm not familiar with with who he is. So, um, could you like give a little context about what he did that may have been different from other people that that some Republicans think he didn't do anything wrong? So Mike Milken worked at this brokerage called Drexel Burnham Lambert, and he was the most aggressive of the 1980s aggressive financiers. He made Gordon Gecko look like a pussycat. And he worked from this X-shaped desk in Los Angeles. He, was, <laughs> he wasn't even on, on Wall Street. He was, he was out in California. And what he did was he didn't just speculate, he didn't really speculate on the stock market at all. What he did was buy and sell companies using debt. And this was the real revolution of the financing of the 1980s is that people realized that uh, you didn't need to have money to buy a company. You could borrow the money. There were people who would lend you the money. And the number one person who would lend you the money is this guy, Mike Milken at Drexel. And he would raise the money by selling these things called junk bonds. And so, and, and he would, the, the bond market has always been very opaque. It has always been very dangerous and he controlled the bond market and he would trade the bond market for his own account using a lot of information that he had about upcoming M&A activity because people were coming to him to finance these deals and he would trade the bond market and he'd trade the stock market. And, and yeah, he, I'm, I'm reasonably certain was guilty of insider trading, but the idea that 
the his defenders, what his defenders will tell you is that look, what he was doing was financing deals, um, allowing people to to buy and sell companies. This is exactly the kind of capitalism that we want to encourage because it you know helps oust the OTOs, directors of the paper company and replace them with people who really care about shareholders and we want shareholder capitalism and the shareholders are the people we need to worry about the most and we want stocks to go up and we want the people who invest in the junk bond market to make money. We want everyone to make money and the more money that people make, the better off everyone's going to be. Um, you know, that kind of rhetoric, like he, Milken was really the, the avatar of the, of the most aggressive part of it. And um, and when he went down, like a lot of that came to an end, the entire concept of junk bonds was really tarnished to the, to, 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 to the point at which they had to rename them. They're now called high yield bonds <laughs> because <laughs> junk bonds, um, like had a bad name. He used to do these things called leveraged buyouts, leveraged buyouts got a bad name. So they had to be renamed too. they're now called private equity. Um, and, you know, like it. So, but it still goes on, right? You still have private equity firms um, issuing high yield bonds to take over companies, just as you had leveraged buyout companies issuing junk bonds to take over companies. It's exactly the same thing. It's just different words and with better lawyers and <laughs> in a more sophisticated way that people aren't obviously breaking the law anymore. Yeah, and I think in the wider culture, you have a sense that now, now debt is good. Even like normal people are using credit cards in a way they hadn't been in the 50s and 60s. And I think with uh, Malkin is also the idea that he was kind of a shadowy figure, as uh, Felix has said. He was less flamboyant than than Bosky, but he, I think, he captured some of the the what you see with uh, Gordon Gecko. Um, so we're kind of coming up to the hour mark. I've got one final question for Vaughn, which is kind of unrelated to most things, uh, just a random question, but is there anything more specific we'd like to talk about the film and its kind of impact on both the kind of 1980s culture and, you know, kind of moving forward, or is there anything you guys want to just get out there as far as uh, what this film means to you or what you find particularly interesting about it? Um... So if I may start there, I think one big trend of the 80s um, in 80s films, especially ones that deal with um, the age range around Gordon Gecko, is this kind of confrontation of um, how these kind of 30 and 40 year olds were teenagers in the 60s. And a lot of those teenagers in the 60s were heavily involved in counterculture. And when you get to the 80s, um, a lot of them are now kind of selling out, uh, quote unquote, selling out in terms of getting into the kind of corporate structures. Um, and a lot of films kind of capture that, that generation questioning themselves and questioning their, their decisions in the 80s. I don't think that that comes out in this film. And I think that's a very interesting choice to not kind of focus on that, th that thing. Like, the, like one of the films that I'm thinking about specifically is The Big Chill. Um, that's all about a group of friends who were 
very into counterculture in the 60s and now they're all like parents or they're lawyers and they, there's this this quote-unquote sellout culture um and that would be the generation between martin sheen and charlie sheen in mm. the film that that gecko's kind of right snug in there um and they don't make and that I, I would note that, that, that four years after Oliver Stone makes Wall Street, he makes The Doors, right? He has that yeah. whole obsession with um, with 60s culture, but you're right, it doesn't turn up in Wall Street at all. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It, it's it's a very interesting choice to not bring that, that kind of idea into it. And I think it's because they're focusing on this generational divide. Like I was saying earlier with Martin Sheen's character being all for labor unions, being for workers, standing up for fact factory positions and all of that, and then two generations later with Charlie Sheen, um, not really understanding the importance of the creating part of, of society that his dad stands for. And the last two lines of the movie are what? It's like create instead of buying and selling other people's creations. Um, and I think that's, that's a really important part that is definitely in some other films of the 80s, but it doesn't really match the, the same tone of what I think of at least when I think of 80s films about finance and corporate and all of that part of America. So I think that's a really interesting part on Oliver Stone's. Um, well, I think there's a, there's a little um, issue here because Oliver Stone is making a film that actually has a, you know, a social democratic message or looking at um, capitalism from a more sort of fruitful and creative aspect because he does push characters like um, Charlie Sheen's father. Although I, I, the thing about that generation, and, I, and I've noticed it by doing this podcast, if you look at 1972, um, Nixon did well with young people. And then in 84, Reagan does well with, with young people. I think the generation of creatives who are just snug between the silent generation and boomers or, or early boomers, most of them were part of the silent majority. You know, it, it was only a few people who sort of occupy that space of, you know, um, more sort of yippie culture. I think the, the wider hippie culture was not particularly political. And, um, and I think it's, it was a very, it was a much more easier cultural and generational transition than is framed by um, some of the creators who went on to make movies about it. Well, that's a, it's, I'll a, just it's, a, add it's a huge that, question. Like, though. I, I just want to add, apropos of absolutely nothing here, that this is an amazing New York movie. As someone who's lived in mm -hmm. New York for the first 20 odd years, um, very, very few movies um, capture New York City, the streets of New York, the geography of New York, um, mm. as well as this one. It's like, you know how the Hollywood cliche is the people in New York going out to a restaurant and then like exiting into the back alley and there aren't any back alleys in New York. And you're like, what the hell are you doing here? None of that happens in this movie. Like when they drive down the FDR drive to get to the Southern District Courthouse, like that is how you would get there. That is the route you would take. He is very, very, there's all of the locations in this movie are 
specific actual places which you can find on the map and they make sense and they work together um how they get from a to b all fits together and if you know new york this is so much more of an accurate picture of new york than you know something mm. like manhattan by woody allen <laughs> I, d I definitely agree with that yeah and just off of that, um, New York in the mid 70s was going through a serious financial crisis, right? And just the Correct. topography of New York changes in the 1980s and you, you mm. get um, people emerging like Donald Trump and, you know, Trump's putting, building all these um, buildings and he's a, he's a 40 year old billionaire in, you know, in scare quotes, right? But um, He's part of that generation that, that, that you, you were talking about. And those people in New York, you know, they went through a fiscal crisis. They, they, some of them were disabused of the more sort of socialistic policies that were pushed forward by New York mayors and New York governors previously. And, and, and there, is a, there is a change there. And, and the interesting part about that 1977-78 fiscal crisis in New York is that really was a case of the white knight uh, financier, never mind the fictional English um, Terence Stamp character. What we had was this European emigre named Felix Rowatin who came in and worked very hard and refinanced all of New York's debt and effectively took over the city. Like he was the big creditor who more or less could tell the mayor what was and wasn't permissible. And you know, he died, what, about a year ago now? And, and people really gave him credit for effectively saving New York when President Gerald Ford refused to bail the city out. It was Felix Rowerton who came in and he was nothing but Wall Street, but he was the complete opposite end of Wall Street. He wasn't the stockbrokers. He wasn't the greed is good. He wasn't the corporate raider. He was the smooth investment banker, type who would eventually go on to basically epitomize everything that now exists at places like Goldman Sachs and mm. Morgan Stanley. Yeah, and Rowerton's regime in New York was kind of considered like a shock regime, like a, you know, like shock capitalism um, by, by, by some historians. And I think that you, you put, you think about Rowerton's um, sort of control of New York, and then you also think about the um, stagflation in the late 70s, issues like that. It, it, all, it all comes together in order to create and change um, the generation that came through the late 60s. I think many of them ended up feeling like Bod Fox. They, you know, they, they admired Donald Trump because they had gone through a period of, of uh, dif difficulty with more um, um, sort of in interventionist fiscal uh, government. Mm. Um, I kind of side thing. I have a question that I've been thinking about during this that I have a vague answer to, but I'm wondering what you guys think about it. Um, so we've, we've talked about how this film is kind of timeless now and it is such a big part of kind of popular memory um, about the 80s and in thinking about finance and Wall Street and everything. But at the time, it didn't do particularly well in the box office. It was um, somewhere around the like 60th best 
film of the year, I think, in terms of gross sales. And, and I'm wondering if that is because it was released two months or three months after the stock market crash in 1987. Do you think that kind of impacted how audience viewed it at the time? And then why, why is it so timeless now? If it didn't do as well back then, kind of why are audiences attracted to it still? I'm just kind of musing on this. If you guys have any thoughts, I would really like to know. I don't have a specific answer for that. I think there probably is some context with regards to um, a direct box office might not be, sorry, a box office might not be directly related to how much impact it actually has with regards to sort of leaking into society and that kind of right. thing. You know, you will often get films such as um, Shawshank Redemption, which didn't do particularly well at the box office, didn't win any Oscars, although got some nominations. But over time, because of like video rental, etc., and being on TV a lot, it got played and played and played, and it became part of sort of American society to the point where, you know, any voiceover now that's not done by Morgan Freeman is considered a poor voiceover. So I, I don't know if there's a certain element of of maybe we sometimes prejudge a film like its immediate box office with regards to its immediate impact. Um, there, there very well could be a direct correlation between something like a Wall Street, you know crash or wall street um plummet and people not wanting to go see a film about it yeah. um i i don't have any specific answer on that. I, I have a theory about this which is that these are worthy films right the films mm -hmm. that don't do particularly well at the box office but then wind up having this multi-decade afterlife tend to have a lot of words in them and they're much less visual they're not based on action you don't remember individual visuals so much as like the phrases greed is good lunch is for whims mm. um i would put that in the same category as say the princess bride or mm. with oh, nail and so i good. you know <laughs> none of these movies did well at the box office but they, right. but and i think that moviegoers when they go out to the movies, want to sit in a seat and sit back with their popcorn and be entertained by a superhero, <laughs> right? Um, and if you think about, say, Platoon, which Oliver Stone made before this, um, that's a super visual movie. And you think about that movie and all you can think of is a series of like indelible visuals. Mm -hmm. And then you think about this and it's it's all words hang on a sec he didn't make did he make platoon am i, am I confusing it yeah he did he made platoon yeah he, he made platoon right um and um are you sure that wasn't kubrick no i'm pretty sure <laughs> no, that was full metal jacket all of this stone isn't talented time. enough to make platoon <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was, i'm pretty sure it was platoon yeah 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 it was platoon um, okay, so in any case, so yeah, so Platoon is visual, Wall Street is not, it's cerebral. In order mm -hmm. to enjoy the film, you need to understand some pretty sophisticated concepts about buyouts, and you need to pay a lot of attention to the dialogue and work out who's doing what and what the hell they're talking about, Blue Horseshoe, and understand, you know, the ideas that are going on. This is like an 
Aaron Sorkin movie before Aaron Sorkin was even around, right? Hmm. And those never do that well. Interesting. Right. So, so, do, do we know if the really network did well? That's a, a good question. Question. I will Google that while someone Yeah, else. and I guess because, you know, uh, Gecko, I mean, Michael Douglas did win Best Actor, I think, for, for the mm-hmm. role. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's crystallized in people who who uh, watch movies for a living or historians and then in the sort of wider thinking culture a little bit. And I guess that's probably why it, it sustains so well. And mm-hmm. I, it might be the same for, for the network as well. Network from just, I mean, it was a success compared to its budget, but it took about half what Wall Street did as far as that was concerned. Whereas yeah, just, just from Googling, Platoon took, I think, four times or three times, sorry, about three times as much as... Uh, as Wall Street, so I think what you're saying, Felix, is if we ever make a feature film about our podcast, we better get some good visuals in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, for sure. The weird thing was that it, it went the other way, right? He starts with Platoon. This is this is the sequence: eighty six, eighty seven, eighty eight is Platoon, which is like strong visuals. Wall Street, which is cerebral, and then he follows that up with a movie about a podcast, which is talk radio. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, maybe we can see if he's interested in doing one on us then. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Is there any, any, I, I did have one final question. Is there anything else you guys would like to mention on the film before we, we wrap up? Um, I just want to thank Felix for that theory because now I'm thinking about that. And I think that's really, mm. really interesting about the like thought provoking nature of a film being it's kind of more lasting impact, which kind of like, ties in with the film actually in terms of if you want a big box office quick quick buck in that way then you can kind of cop out with the visuals and and like action sequences and stuff um but if you want a longer term one you kind of have to work for it to create a thought-provoking piece yeah and it's qu- kind of hard to get these kind of things made these sort of middle budget movies with mm, big especially these yeah, yeah that today. definitely has died away more, more of them are on um television now i think yeah, I mean, I suppose it's a little different because it does have more historical context to it. But you look at something like the King's Speech, which made over four hundred million worldwide, which is enormous for was essentially a, a conversation movie and a, a movie mm. about about characters rather than about specific visual action. Um, my my one last question was, and Felix, you might not fully understand the context, so I'll explain it. Um, we sometimes ask Vaughn questions oh, about about Mitt Romney. And specifically, whether or not Mitt Romney would endorse something. So, Vaughn, do you think Mitt Romney would endorse this film? Would Mitt Romney endorse Wall Street? Absolutely. Um, I think he would. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I. Mm, I think there are some scenes that he would definitely condemn, like the hand job Wait, didn't in Romney the beginning. Start <laughs> I mean, he, he he was senior at Bank Capital, but like Mitt Romney. But you know, if you remember when I talked about how these things called leveraged buyouts got rebranded as private equity. Bain Capital is private equity. He, this is exactly what Mitt Romney was doing, was buying and selling <laughs> companies using finance. Oh, don't tarnish him for me. <laughs> Vaughn has got a very specific communist Mitt Romney sort of <laughs> crossover here, as you might be able to tell. It's a very interesting. Vaughn, is, is, it, is it the... Um, is it the gray sideburns? Is that it? Yeah, it's it's the kind of silver fox. Like, of course I endorse Black Lives Matter. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, anyway. 
Anyway, um, now we've, we've, we've... Just shut it down, Simon. We've, we've tarnished your career enough, Vaughn. Um, I'm never going to get a job. The yeah, communists are going to kick me out. The communists are going to kick you out. The Republicans <laughs> might, might take you back, though, Vaughn, so... Oh, thank God. Uh, right, well, we've, we've probably taken up enough, Felix, as time with our Yeah, husbands. I'm sorry. Um, th- Felix, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a real pleasure. It's been really enjoyable. hugely enjoyable. I loved it. Fantastic. Yeah, uh, thank you so much. Uh, that was that was really interesting. It really was. And yeah, yeah Felix, that was absolutely fantastic. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, and thank you for knowing things about like money and stuff. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, because <laughs> I have to pretend to know things about yeah. money. <laughs> yeah, that that was that was really useful for a podcast that's doing an episode on on Wall Street. So thank <laughs> thank you for helping. <laughs> Um, we will have another episode in the near future, which may or may not include Mitt Romney. We'll see how that goes, and may or may not involve Vaughn, depending on how much shame she has. For <laughs> episode, uh, I have none. You have none. Uh, <laughs> thanks again to Felix, and uh, yeah, and thanks to my co-host Toby and Vaughn. And like I say, we'll have another episode for you in the near future. Goodbye.